Episode 15. Today on the Movement of Color podcast, I admit it, I listened to the new R. Kelly song, Here's My Hot Take. Also, we get Mike Strode of the Colonel Collaborative to talk about time banking. But enough, enough talking about it. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo, and I say, let's start this podcast. Byron. Hello. <laughs> I just want to say to you that I admit listening to the new Hart Kelly song, I admit. Uh, that I, I, I've, I've heard rumblings about it, but I've been actively trying to avoid it. <laughs> and I, I hear you just run head, head first into it. I, yeah, I just went into it. Anytime I hear any weird musical controversy, I have to run right directly in front of that train because I have to know what's going on. And man, was it a doozy. Man, sir, you are braver than than cops. You, you are braver than troops. <laughs> yes. Thank I you like for your so. service. <laughs> oh, well, I survived it. All 20 minutes and 11 seconds. Wait, wait, what? It's fucking 20 minutes? Yeah, it's a 20 minute opus, if you will. God damn! What the fuck? <laughs> uh, so, okay, so it, it's called. I admit, why the fuck is it called that? <laughs> well, after listening to the lyrics, I'm still not quite convinced why it's called. I admit, but here are some things that he admits to. He admits to um, potentially being involved with women and being confused by women. They're looking to get his money, and they said that they were of age. Uh, He's got to take his word for it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Trump and Putin, you know, I can't see why he wouldn't lie about it. (laughs) But, uh, so, there's an element of that. Then he goes on, he admits that he could barely read. So for like on talk shows and, you know, award shows, when he had to read a teleprompter that he couldn't really read the teleprompter, um, he admits to a bunch of other non sequitur shit that um, goes on and on for 20 minutes. And he also calls out um, John uh, Derogatis, a journalist uh, on NPR, and a Chicago journalist for writing articles about him uh, messing around with underage girls. Ah, okay. Uh, so, so like, just from like, just from that, I, I could assume it's because like this is basically like his weird like comeback song, like 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 comeback song about like all the pretty clearly true accusations against him. 
like that have come up like just over all the years of his weird shit and just outright like at some cases outright pedophilia. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely his clapback uh, against, particularly in the context of the mute R. Kelly movement. Um, so it seems like he must have got really high and decided, all right, let's let's keep the tape rolling. Let me go. And um, that was a bad decision. <laughs> okay, that 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 was that was a no go. Okay, um, so like. Okay, so R. Kelly, just as, as like a quick overview, can you give us like a quick overview of who the fuck R. Kelly is and why we should even remotely give a fuck about like why we should like either should or should not like actively try to avoid this guy? Okay, so R. Kelly, born Robert Kelly, um, on the south side of Chicago, he actually went to school in Hyde Park neighborhood. Um, he is an R&B singer whose first album, 12 Play, uh, came out in 1994. It actually had some bangers on it. Um, shortly after that album, he rose to fame with writing the song, I Believe I Can Fly, for the Space Jam soundtrack, if you remember that movie. And then, you know, he, he, had a, he was a hit maker. You know, he wrote songs for like, Celine Dion and shit, you know, at his peak. And just when you think his career would be over, he would come back with something else. Now, here's where the controversy comes in. Because otherwise you're like, okay, shit, music career, I like, you know, I believe I can fly. That's a pretty cool song. Um, Where's the problem? Well, in and around that time, he also produced Aaliyah. Do you remember Aaliyah? No, like I, I have, I don't, I'm not, I'm not an R and B guy, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as knowledgeable as as other people. Okay, no problem. That's cool. So Aaliyah, she had a couple songs produced by R. Kelly and written by R. Kelly, in on off her first album, Back and Forth, kind of a hit, um, and Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. Um, that's that that's a worrisome title. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> considering that she was 15 and he was 32 at the time and okay, they got the married <laughs> okay okay what what okay I'm, I'm i'm like legitimately fucking scared right now of, <laughs> of the story uh can continue okay so the marriage was annulled you know they were able to say oh wait no. wait, wait what wait, wait go go back go go back what what do you mean the marriage was annulled yeah they got married you know, I remember watching this on like MTV News when I was like in seventh grade. And I went, "What? She's like almost my age, and she's gotten married to R. Kelly? I guess okay. Age ain't nothing but a number, right?" <laughs> and um, that created a little bit of controversy, and a little bit compared to the most recent stuff. And then you know, they went their separate ways. Okay, I, I knew about R. Kelly's, like, weird sex cult thing, but I did not know about the fucking, like, the, the underage marriage. What the fuck? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he had a child bride. Um, and she just happened to be a famous child bride um, who later died in a plane accident. But um, unrelated. 
unrelated to R. Kelly. So the next little bit of um, history that's kind of like, you know, R. Kelly being a sexual predator is the sex tape. I don't know how much background you got. The, the original P tape. <laughs> yes, exactly. The original P tape. And um, it was one, it was, a, you know, in Chicago, it was kind of an open secret. Like, yeah, R. Kelly kind of likes young girls. And all of a sudden, this sex tape, the P tape, came out and it was, you know, sold on the street by, you know, bootleggers. And that was a whole thing because, you know, now you got video images of him having sex and, you know, peeing on what looks like underage girls. Yeah, that's that's child porn. Yeah. That, that shit will get you in fucking jail. Mm-hmm. And he got away with it in court because he had some great lawyers, let's be honest, um, by saying it wasn't him. He was like, nope, that's not me. That's like my brother. We didn't know anything about those girls. Blah, blah, blah. Wasn't me. So I should get off. And he did. So he, he didn't see any he didn't see any justice for, for pedophilia and child porn. Uh no, no, no. So now let's fast forward a little bit later. So he has a revival of his career after that. Um the Chocolate Factory album was a you know big hit with um the remix of Ignition and um couple other the, albums i'm sorry i need to interject the chocolate factory sounds like a, like a weird like scat fetish <laughs> for those of you who are, who are way too online uh you know what that is <laughs> yeah oh shiza <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh actually the album's pretty good musically you know i know some people will be like oh you're gonna say that about r kelly yeah i could separate the man from the art that album was actually pretty solid. Anyway, his career goes on, and then his records just kind of started fading and stopped giving a shit about him because, you know, he's been around for like 20 years by this point. Then emerges that, because he has a house in Atlanta, and, he, and I guess he still has his property in Chicago, but um, it emerges that he has these young women in kind of like a sex cult. I don't know all the details, but it kind of changes where he's, he holds them against their will and their will is, you know, to have sex. Yes. They have to have sex with him. Otherwise they're like nothing. And it was like mind control kind of shit, very manipulative shit. And that inspired the mute R Kelly movement because you know there was enough girls that kind of came up and spoke about yeah r kelly does some weird shit and um this song is a response to that without calling out the mute r kelly movement but one way you can kind of tell that is a response to this movement was um in the song like around minute 13 
because he talks about how he lost a lot of money because of, you know, scandalous managers and lawyers stealing and taking from him and he couldn't read contracts. Uh, he talks about, all right, so I have to go out on the road to make money and feed my children. But then, you know, people are trying to shut down my shows. And that was a part of the whole mute R. Kelly thing was kind of divesting from him, you know, not having him available on Spotify, you know, the industry kind of separating from him. So that's kind of where we are today with that damn song. God damn. So this this song has a lot of baggage apparently. So it's (laughs) like, I mean, the, I, I mean, just from like, just for, for me, like, doing a bit of research um, on R. Kelly specifically, um, it's, like, pretty clear. You're like, yeah, he probably did all those things. Like, it's very, it's very, very likely he did all those things. Um, and the mute R. Kelly movement is pretty much in the right um, to do this. I mean, if you had a fucking – if you had, like, some, like, a known, like uh, – like advocate for fucking pedophilia, uh, pedophilia coming to your fucking neighborhood. Yeah, you'd be fucking pissed off. <laughs> like, yeah, you'd want to shut down any shit he tries to do. Um, because like, because if he can make a fuck ton of money and like be now basically an open pedophile, like, like at that point, like you're just like doing a big giant like it's okay to be a pet like uh to be into pedophilia, like neon sign to society. And that's like, no, you can't fucking do that shit. Yeah, I agree with you. But I feel like there should be a little bit of nuance with it, too. Because I'm like, all right, I don't want this guy making money off of exploiting pedophilia or just making money around that. But I, I don't mind if he posts shit on the Internet where he's not making money, like this stupid song. Um, just like, I'm a weirdo. I like, I listen to Charles Manson. You know, I think Look at Your Game Girl is a great song. And he fucking killed people. Even though he didn't fucking kill them directly. I don't know, maybe that's my gallows sense and poor taste. I don't know. Yeah, that's your hot take. That's my hot take. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely think he is responsible for a lot of the stuff that's came out about him. It's um, been well known that he's, he does shit like this. And every excuse that he gives in a song is really irrelevant to uh, what his actions were in, his, in the past. And then the, the fucking weird thing about the song because then he brings out his kids and like, oh, and, you know, my children are going to have to hear all the things they say about daddy and blah, blah, blah. And they're taking money out of my kid's mouth. And, you know, Chicago needs to be supportive of me and rally around me because um, there's so much shit going on in the inner city. Kids are killing each other and we need more role models to kind of. I'm like, what? Arca- what? I mean, yes, just not him. God's sakes, not him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Literally anybody but him. And you know what? 
if he really, really wanted to make a difference in Chicago, he could be proactive on it. And, yeah, he doesn't. And he didn't. And he made a song about how he likes fucking young girls, but saying that he didn't fuck young girls. But he admitted. Hmm. Yeah. So, that was another little tidbit of the, the lyric where I was like, Wow, that's really kind of pandering, R. Kelly. He had to bring in all the dead people of violence in Chicago. Specifically to his defense. Exactly. Yeah, that's just outright disgusting. Um, so I so thank you so much for trudging through the fucking trenches on this one uh, to, to save all of us from listening to this goddamn song. I mean, I'm pretty... I'm, like I'm very happy to hear that uh, R. Kelly has become so irre- irrelevant that he's basically devolved into a SoundCloud rapper. Um, <laughs> uh, so hopefully that that his devolution just continues and he just stops even remotely being worth any attention and just is known as oh yeah that one guy who used to be famous is now a fucking uh, like so like, such an outcast like no one will fucking give him money, um, which good. Um, he is a horrible person, um, and uh, I just personally don't give a shit about his music. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, no loss to me. Well, hey, this this last song, like, is was complete complete garbage, and I will probably not listen to any of his catalog going forward, uh, especially new shit. That's just fucking. Eh. <laughs> All right. Well. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. It's uh, absolutely amazing. Mike Strode is the founder of the Colonel Collaborative on the South Side of Chicago. Um, and he's here to talk to us a little bit about time banking. So, Mike, what's, what is time banking? Uh, so, time banking uh, at, its bare, at its essence is trading time as a currency. So, using time just like you might use the, the dollar. Um, as a as a as a unit of value, um, taking the the hour, or you know, you can kind of break it down even smaller to the half hour, and saying that you know my hour is equivalent to your hour, and we can trade our services and our skills using that hour as a marker of of how much you know value is traded at any given time. Okay, so if we're using time as a marker, but we're trading our labor or our resources or whatnot. Um, let's say I'm a plumber and I need guitar lesson. How would it work for me to kind of, in essence, barter that uh, that transaction? Um, well, you know, in terms of time banking, uh, what we do not attempt to do is equalize the value of serve. Well, what we don't attempt to do is try to negotiate um, inverse valuation of service. Um, the time bank is, is really about thinking about the egalitarian offering of service. So it's, it's 
slightly different from you know uh, volunteer volunteerism or altruism. Um, but it's also slightly different from market exchange. So in market exchange, um, we have the dollar being sort of the unit of value, and then everyone has a different level of dollars that's assigned uh, by the, the negotiation of the market for their services or for their skills. Um, inside of time banking, what we're attempting to do is not necessarily to um, give to match the dollar value or match the market economy value. But what we're attempting to do is build community in the context of trading skills and services, and then ultimately allow the two people to negotiate um, how much value they assign to a service. So it is certainly possible that two people will be in a transaction and you know um, someone will offer two hours of a service but potentially the person who receives the service might say, you know what, I want to give you three hours because not only, you know, did you um, provide me with that service, but, you know, you provided me with prep. Uh, you were you were on point. I learned actually more than I thought I might learn. And ultimately what's happening here is that the um, exchange is it's it's it works on a sort of mutual credit basis. So the time that you give someone inside of the time bank is debited from your time banking account. So the money is made at the moment of, of the exchange, at the moment of the transaction. So you also now, because you have, um, they, they, you've given them three hours and three hours has, has been debited from your account, now you have to go out and give someone else three hours. So ultimately, it, it, it's about sort of building that communal participation and building that communal value, building those relationships inside of the community and not necessarily about trying to um, value a service in the same way that a market economy or a dollar, dollar economy might value the service. Wow, okay, that's really interesting. So I hear community come up over and over as a theme. In your community of um, time banking, what are some of the dynamics at play? Who's involved? How do they get along? Does it spill into other activities outside of um, the time bank in, in the transactional way? Certainly, you know, it, it can uh, it can have spillover effect into other aspects of community. So I'll begin with the with just noting that this time bank, the Coldenut Collaborative, was founded in um, February of last year, or or really it launched in February of last year. Um, the idea for the time bank, you know, goes back to 2015 and some conversations that I had with. Um, the founder of the Cowrie Collective in St. Louis, which inspired the Colonet Collaborative, uh, the founder's name, uh, Chinieri Ote. Um, and so that this time bank was founded initially inside of the social permaculture portion of, uh, of the Black Oak Center for Sustainable Renewable Living. And permaculture is a, a practice that's really about sustainable agriculture and agriculture that's in line with natural cycles or nature cycles. So the social, social permaculture portion was about how do we develop the necessary relationships that will make our agricultural or permaculture projects more successful. And so the Time Bank was actually rooted and, and, and piloted inside of that permaculture uh, group. So the initial cohort of people who joined the Time Bank were really into trading their agricultural skills. And, and their agricultural labor. So you had people who were um, helping to b build chicken shacks on one another's uh, property. You had people who were going to um, to to extract 
poisonous or, 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 or plants that were weeds from one another's land. Um, you had people who were um, helping to consult with other folks around what sort of structures they might erect on their property to make water flow in a more dynamic in a, a way, in a way that, you know, would actually uh, promote the best growth patterns. So that was the initial cohort of the Time Bank. The Time Bank has evolved since then to include not only folks who are interested in permaculture, but um, several organizations uh, that, that are interested in other things. So so uh, the North Park Nature Center recently joined through our, our, our pilot partnership uh, or project with um, Hive Chicago, and they're interested in getting the members of the Albany Park community engaged with the activities of the Nature Center. So how do you get community members to come in and program the space and host community events inside of the space that get them more involved in the park environment? Um, How do you get people inside of the North Park Nature Center to possibly unpack some of the assets that are that are present in the, the the North Park Nature Center, and these are not just you know physical assets, but these are human assets. You know, what are the skills that we have here that we could possibly teach the community that would again create this deeper conversation, this deeper exchange between members of the community and between the um, the the institution that's inside of the community. So um, this this is actually a conversation that I really like to have about. Uh, multi-use structures in communities or third places. Um, most of the third places that presently exist in communities outside of, you know, libraries, uh, you know, are, are maybe coffee shops or Starbucks, you know, or some, some other institution, you know, that really has a focus on business, that has a focus on um, on monetary gains. So they're, they're focused on bringing in consumers and not necessarily allowing people and communities to, to camp, camp out there and really build relationships with one another in a place that, that, you know, would foster that sort of engagement. So um, that the, the, those are some of the dynamics that time banks are attempting to tackle, um, helping institutions to pa- unpack their social capital, unpack their assets, um, and then helping communities to discover more of the things that exist within the, in their community realm. So what are the, the skills and talents that are represented in your neighborhood that you don't necessarily talk about? Because when we meet each other, Maybe we're introducing one one another to, as our profession. I come to you and I say I'm an IT consultant, and you know that's all you know about me initially. Mm-hmm. But you know I also ferment. You know I, I also you know make a fair amount of uh, sauerkraut. You know I, I also do kefir and kombucha. There's all sorts of other things that I do that you might be interested in, but we don't necessarily. It, it's a lot to to get out in one conversation. So the time bank unpacks those skills. Wow. That's fun. Now, I I wonder if that – do you actually do fermenting and sauerkrauting and kombucha or was that an I, example? I absolutely do and I, I love uh, – the one I love is pineapple beer, you know, so or, or pineapple, what they call um, tapache, so <laughs> fermented pineapple. Oh, man. You know what? My I'm glad that I met my wife first because she would fall in love with you on that. <laughs> but – um, I guess to get back to point on that. So one thing I hear and I've saw in my studies about time banking that it can be really useful in a community in which they have um, not as much liquid capital, if you will. You know, there's not as much cash on hand. Um, I remember watching an interview with um, the author of Jackson um, Rising, Carly Okuno. 
And he was talking about that was the issue with, in Jackson, Mississippi, where there was a population that didn't have access to a lot of just cash. And time banking was a solution to that. Tell me your thoughts. Um, well, the interesting thing is that I, I just responded. So City Bureau has put out a, a questionnaire recently where they're asking the questions, um, what does black wealth mean to you and what does black wealth look like in Chicago? Um, and sort of my response to that definition of, of, of black wealth that they that they, that they asked about was that, you know, it's the total shared communal capital or value of all forms um, available, accessible and traded among members of the black community. So, you know, um, when I talk about sort of the, the total um, the, the, all forms of capital, you know, um, there are eight that are sort of generally defined, you know, um, which are financial, intellectual, living material, cultural, experiential, social and spiritual. Um, again, financial, intellectual, living, material, cultural, experiential, social, and spiritual. So if you think about – if you break up capital in that in that form, then only one-eighth of that is financial capital. Um, there are all these other ways to kind of think about wealth, to think about prosperity, to think about value that exists in communities. Um, and, and yes – you know, historically, because of, uh, of, of of racial barriers that have been erected in institutions, um, you know, uh, structural divestment um, and, and you know, various recessions, uh, you know, and most recently the 2008 recession and housing crisis, right, that hmm. hit black financial wealth, you know, um, very hard. And so um, certainly these communities have have historically had had trouble um uh, attaining and then holding on to financial capital, but you know there are rich, you know, cultural heritage with heritages that exist within these communities, and and that's not just this, you know, that's just not the black community. I mean, that's all marginalized communities. Um, they're rich cultural heritages, and because these communities are marginalized, they've always had to depend upon and trade on on their relationships. So you know, um, social capital has also been well represented in these communities, and so. Where there is an absence of financial capital, we have to think about getting more creative in the ways that we unpack and trade in these other forms of capital that exist within these communities. And, you know, for me, I think time time banking is one way to kind of get at that. Um, The interesting thing is that once you actually start unpacking these things, um, it is very possible that a time bank can – build itself out of existence or organize itself out of existence. And I'll give the example of the Cowrie Collective. You know, one of the things that – so Cowrie Collective has been in existence for nine years. Um, one of the things that was discovered inside of the Cowrie Collective is that after several years of, of trading within a time bank, mm-hmm. people might stop reporting their hours. Mm-hmm. And they might stop reporting their hours because they built such relationships with, with members of their community. They've actually started to establish such deep ties with one another that it becomes, it transforms itself into a gift economy where they're like, yeah, I don't really need you to report the hours. I don't care, you know, because I, I'm, I'm giving to you because I know now that you are a member of my tribe, you are a member of my community, and that it's going to come back to me. We have a deep relationship, so you know I know that that social capital is locked in, and I can call upon it when I when I need it without having the vehicle of the time bank to facilitate that. Wow, that's a really cool example. Um, some of my more ideological peachy friends will say, "Wow, that's like a path to full communism." <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so. Yeah, that is quite true. Um, so. 
If you're in the Chicago area, how would one get involved with the Colonel Collaborative? Um, well, getting involved with the Colonel Collaborative is very easy. Um, so we have our website, which is www.colanutcollab.org. That's K-O-L-A-N-U-T-C-O-L-L-A-B.org, O-R-G. Um, so if you go to the website, you've got the membership section there. Um, you know, and, and membership just involves you filling out an online application for the time bank. Um, you'll you'll receive a call from myself, you know, that will kind of explain some of the, you know, just kind of ask you, you know, how you found out about the time bank and try to get some more information about your interest in the time bank. Because effectively, what we're trying to do is get people to come into the time bank and really unpack their skills, which can be a very hard thing to do. A very difficult one. One of the, the the most difficult things to get people to do inside of the time bank is tell you what they need, mm-hmm. because um, capitalism, you know, tells me tells us we don't need anything. You, you're you're a self-made individual. You know, you you are self-established. You've got your own bootstraps, and you can hook them to your shoulders and pull yourself up as you need to. But recognizing our interdependency and recognizing that there are things that we need, and those things can be very basic. Um, you know, companionship, you know, is, is something, you know, that you, you, you may, you may not think of as a need, but, you know, we are social beings as human, you know, uh, social creatures as human beings. Um, you know, um, do, do you need someone to go on a bike ride with, you know, do you need a, a good chess partner, right? You know, yeah. those are all things that, um, we might not think about as being valued in money and valued in dollars, but they have a great social value. They have great social equity. And so those are things that we should be able to figure out a type of currency that we can trade in where we can give that value to someone and say, I appreciate what you have done here. And so I find it valuable and I'm willing to give you time, which I have to actually go make up inside of the time bank in order to um, to afford you this. Um, in, in terms of the membership, you know, it's it's $25 a year that just kind of helps to allay some of the cost of, of hosting the website and, you know, printing materials and recruiting other members. Um, but, you know, actually this year, because we have uh, been under the, the Hive Chicago pilot, um, we, we received a, a catalyst um, grant or, or, or spark grant in order to help us pilot time banking inside of um youth-facing, youth-serving, and youth-development organizations, uh, including the North Park Nature Center, uh, Coder Space, Mosaic. Um, so these are organizations that, again, want to get a, build a deeper relationship with their community. Because of that pilot, you know, we've been able to, you know, sponsor anybody who's joining inside of the, the 2018 calendar year to join for free. You know, we, we want to get people in and get them talking about this um, this type of social capital that we're dealing with here. Well, man, that's a lot of great news. So those of you in the Chicago area, join now. And um, thank you, Mike. Absolutely. Very welcome. All right, folks. We have reached the end of another episode. Please follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color and support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash movement of color. That's where you can find our new series on anarchism. So enjoy that. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo.
I look forward to hanging out with you next week. Adios.